Hello, my name is Adrian DeChow. Welcome to our special episode, Fighting the Cutoff. I will be joined by our guests, Dr. Azadeh Yadolahi, Pascal Tyrell, and Sarah Fung, where we'll be holding a very interesting and important conversation on the importance of data in informing medical practice. Evidence-based practice has become a standard Canadian physicians uphold when diagnosing and recommending treatments to their patients. However, bias can seep into data collection, analysis, and interpretation, or anything in between, which can negatively affect patient outcomes. In this special episode, you will hear from medical research scientists and healthcare professionals on how research could be improved by adopting equitable practices in data collection and addressing systemic issues in the Canadian healthcare system. Our goal with these discussions is to provide a forum to begin ameliorating some of these issues. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge that here in Toronto, we are in the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations, including the Mississaugas of Credit River, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Seneca, and the Huron-Wendat. This meeting place is still home to many First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people, and we are grateful for the opportunity to live and work on this land. I would like to introduce our guests for this discussion in more detail, starting off with Sarah Fung. Sarah Fung has been practicing as a registered nurse since 2007. Her expertise is in maternal child health, with clinical experience in obstetrics and the NICU. She is on the Research Advisory Board at the Conference Board of Canada and is a certified associate in project management. Sarah is passionate about issues such as anti-racism, health equity, mental health, and improving working conditions for nursing and helping nurses find their career path. Our second guest is Pascal Tyrell, who is a data scientist, a combination of research methodologist, computer-slash-database solutions architect, and innovator. Currently, he is the Director of Data Science and Associate Professor in the University of Toronto, where his research aims to introduce statistically sound and innovative artificial intelligence and machine learning approaches to the study of medical images and health-related outcomes research. Pascal is the CEO and co-founder of the software startup company SoftTX Innovations Incorporated. Our final guest is Dr. Azadeh Yadolahi, who is a senior scientist at the University Health Network's Kite Research Institute, an associate professor at the University of Toronto's Institute of Biomedical Engineering, and adjunct faculty at the University of Manitoba. Her research aims to improve understanding of the pathophysiology of cardiorespiratory disorders during sleep, and to develop novel technologies for improved management of these disorders. She is particularly interested in developing innovative technologies for monitoring of physiological signals at home and implementing equitable and accessible technologies for underrepresented individuals with chronic cardiorespiratory disorders. What constitutes bias in clinical data and how do you think that bias seeps into healthcare data and the handling practices? Okay, so I'll be the first uh, to start this one. Uh, so we could look at bias from different ways when it comes to data and especially in clinical data. And those are the things that basically can affect the analysis or interpretation of the data or even the way that we look at the data without having anything with the data itself. For example, if all the clinical data that we have are based on the information from men, just as an example, and then the data is being generalized, then we will have some bias when we apply them to, for example, women. 
or just we assume that women are going to be smaller than men and everything should either be the same or be just a fact, but by a, a like, for example, by a factor to be a bit less than what we like, for example, the dose of this medication for uh, whatever for men is, then we just multiply that by a factor to make it a smaller, for example, based on the weight and say it should fit for women too, while we may not uh, include different physiology of the men and women and how that is different. Or for example, look at the data for men and then uh, <clears throat> extrapolate that for women without include, uh, considering the effects of the hormones or other things. So, and that will add bias by just not looking at the data properly or not considering the effect of sex. There could be other ways and that uh, there could be bias in the clinical data or interpretation of data that could come from a stigma or lack of knowledge. For example, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the pain and then the uh, threshold for pain that black people are having higher uh, threshold for pain, which is not correct. And that affected the clinical practice a lot. So we could have that bias in data, both from lack of diversity in the data that we have, uh, that we do for developing our algorithm or methods or our clinical decision, and then extrapolate that to everyone without acknowledging the lack of diversity or having some misunderstanding or mis uh, judgment of, uh, again, uh, based on race or the other factor. But given that a lot of the analysis and a lot of the, for example, algorithm development, especially when it comes to machine learning or AI, are based on the data that we have, and there's lack of diversity in the data that we have available, that could add to the biases in the analysis and interpretation. Yeah, just to build on what you said, I think there is um, bias in data from a diversity perspective, because to my knowledge in Canada, we don't collect healthcare data based on ethnicity. So if we don't have the data, how can we extrapolate? How can we make recommendations based on um, things like diversity and ethnicity? And I'm um, just speaking from a frontline point of care perspective, there is bias in data in terms of entering data. So if you're at the bedside, a lot of what we enter is very subjective. So like you mentioned, uh, pain scores, right? If you um, have a patient who, let's say, has a language barrier or a cognitive barrier, are you going to be able to accurately uh, give their pain rating from a scale one to 10 accurately? And sometimes we may assume based on what we see, what we think it is. And that's very... Uh, that's very subjective. So from one person to another, they may assign the patient a different score. And also I think just from a frontline perspective, there is so much work to be done. It's uh, so intense right now at the frontline. A lot of times there just isn't enough time to complete the documentation correctly, which means that unless there is a field that's mandatory where you have to complete it or you cannot submit the data, a lot of times it just doesn't get entered. So I think there's a bias in that aspect as well, where we're dealing with a lot of incomplete data. And if we don't have a complete picture, it's hard really to take that data and turn it into something useful. Um, maybe I'll, I'll jump in uh, a little bit. Uh, the, the answers so far have been very comprehensive, um, but what maybe I can add is um, maybe defining a little bit what bias is. 
just because um, it's talked about a lot, but it's not necessarily understood quite what it means uh, from a you know an AI perspective, or because I think that's kind of what we're talking about tonight, right? Is training models and and making use of all this wonderful data, and so bias is part of your error. So. And I have to roll that back as well. Uh, you don't have error unless you have a model. So you have to uh, keep in mind that um, what we're talking about when we talk about bias and data is we're talking about the effect of um, your, you know, your model. What what can affect the accuracy, the efficiency, you know, however you want to call it, um, generalizability of your model. So bias is systematic error. So it means that it's an error that is caused by what both uh, Sarah and Azadeh uh, described, which is a, a, the most common type of bias, which is a selection bias. And so that means that the data you're training your model on is not complete. So meaning that what you want to generalize it to um, is not included in what you're training it on. If you were to train an algorithm with using only men, and then um, you're, you obtain a successful algorithm. So you're very happy. It's very accurate. Um, if you were to only apply it to men, there's no problem, right? Because the generalizability of your model is perfect, right? So you've trained on men and you're only applying the inference of your model on men. So there's no problem. But where the, the problem comes in, of course, is that you train on men and with a tiny little bit, let's say, of women, um, and then you say, yep, it's all good, and we can generalize to women. You can't. And in that case, you can't because women are underrepresented in your training sample. So I just wanted to point that out because I think that's something that um, you know people need to uh, take into consideration uh, when they're considering bias, right? So that's the job of, of most of us in medical research mm -hmm. is trying to identify and minimize biases. Hey, but there are different uh, types of biases that can creep into your data. So I just wanted to bring that into perspective because um, it's important to realize what you're dealing with, what the problem is, and possibly, you know, what could be some of the, the solutions, right? You said that, you know, sampling bias, like the collection of the data and the training of the model could be one source of bias. But another one I feel like is pretty important and that needs to be addressed is the personal bias that people who develop these models or who certain things they prioritize in that model could generate bias. How do you, or like, how do we even like quantify and measure these biases so we could address them better? Um, I think that's something that that would come up in your ClinEpi class, right? So right. the, uh, you know, identifying and, and describing the various biases that are possible in any kind of clinical study is, is the first thing that you do. I think what you're referring to, uh, which would be a personal bias, would there, when you say personal bias, it, it's still a bias that's going to come under, you know, all of the described biases that exist. So when you say personal bias, that's going to be, for instance, labeling, right? So what you're referring to is maybe like a, a type of overgeneralization bias. That's a big one, right? right, right. So an overgeneralization just means you see one thing and then you say, ah, it's all of them. You know, that's they're all like that. You're imparting what you think, how you see it, uh, what your experience is uh, to the data by when, when it's labeled, right? Mm. Um, and so... 
in that case, it's, you know, the, the solution is actually quite straightforward, right? It's, it's just to avoid those biases. Uh, so in this case, you, you know, you make sure whoever's labeling the data is doing it correctly and is not imparting, uh, you know, personal bias uh, to the data. Um, but I think you also said in your question, you kind of said, well, maybe people that are, are the machine learners that are, you know, training the algorithm could be imparting bias as well. So that one's a little trickier because if you have good data and um, you're doing your job correctly, you know, as a machine learner, uh, the possibility of imparting bias uh, at that level is less. I'm not going to say impossible because it's, it's quite complicated, you know, depending on what you're training, how you're training, what model you're dealing with and, and you know, uh, all the factors involved. Uh, you could potentially, I guess, you know, put in a little bias uh, somehow i've got to say it would be hard for me to think of even how you do it but you could but it would be almost malicious right it would be like you want it to be that way to just not do it on purpose just by your own personal bias that's really going to be at the data level right so how you collect your data what data you collect what you're what are you looking to generalize to uh, are there underrepresented groups in your data that you need to identify before you start your work and your training? That's mm -hmm. kind of the bigger the bigger piece. As Pascal mentioned that really nicely about what the biases are. And the other thing that I was thinking could be part of the bias, and again, could come from the data that we have is more toward that no matter how good your method is and your algorithms are, if the models are based on the data that lacks like some of the elements of that, or if you don't see like, for example, data from people with low socioeconomic status, then you can't develop the models on that. And then you don't have that, that by, I mean, you don't have that diversity, you don't have that effect into your model, and then the data may not be working. We can say the same thing that, for example, when it comes to the hospitals, we just make the models based on what we see. And if we don't see, or we don't know that, okay, there are other people at, that are not at the table and how to represent them, then that could add to the bias that you have. Mm -hmm. So like, for example, when we're designing clinical trials, we do things of how to make, I mean, the design blinds or double blinds. So the person that is doing the measurement doesn't know like, for example, who gets the intervention or who is getting the placebo. So really to reduce the effect of the bias or the implicit bias uh, that Pascal mentioned and how to make sure that you're bringing that into your data. And that's a very important point when it comes to the AI, that there could be some flag points that other biases in the algorithm or algorithms are skewed to a specific dimension or not and then see where that is coming from like all this this talk about like bias and designing the model is all like theoretical but sarah would you say as a frontliner do you see that any of these biases are are manifested in actual clinical practice do you have any experience where these inequities show I think that's a good question because at the front line, everyone is very task oriented, right? So it's hard for someone at the front line, for example, to take a step back and necessarily think about bias, but it is something that occurs all the time. And I think in a perfect world, there would be no bias, but um, unfortunately that's not the case. And especially in the healthcare system, 
we are seeing an overrepresentation of certain groups. Um, so those of most socioeconomic status, those with multiple um, comorbidities or so multiple chronic diseases, um, we see a small percentage of the population that comes through the hospital um, uses more than what we would think in terms of healthcare resources. So I think they may be overrepresented potentially in healthcare data and in research studies. And it's hard because when you're faced with something that you see all the time, it sort of becomes a norm for you. So for example, um, someone in healthcare may think that let's say uh, diabetes or high blood pressure is much more common than it actually is, although it is quite common, but it's just because of what we see all the time that it's hard not to be biased towards um, a certain clinical representation. And that kind of transfers over at, at least into the data that we see. Um, so I guess to answer your question, it does, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't affect our practice. So I think that in terms of the um, clinical practices, we are informed by what we see. So like you mentioned, if we're dealing with healthy people, we don't often have that data to complete the um, research that we see. And so sometimes it can be hard unless you're doing research studies that have, um, that compare, let's say a healthy person to a person with a disease it's hard really to have a complete set of data that you can use to make clinical decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw something in to make things complicated. Sure. Um, why not, right? Why not? Uh, <laughs> hey, come on, it's a podcast. So um, what Sarah said is, is an excellent point, and, and that is, you know, who do you see, right? So in clinic is, is, gonna, is basically going to drive, right? Uh, you know, medicine, essentially. And that makes sense, right? It's who you see. So we're talking about bias. So let's talk about choice. So um, here's a good example. Let's say you're the you're the you know the executive for a hospital and you're buying beds, right? Um, what size beds do you buy? So the question, of course, is you want to accommodate as many patients as you can who come in the door, right? So if we're going to talk about bias, you would say, okay. Well, we're going to measure, you know, a population of people we see, um, and then we're going to take the average, and then we're going to decide on some cut points of small and large, and then we're going to buy a bed that's going to accommodate the most people, right? Makes sense? Okay. So a bias would be that who we ended up measuring was not representative of the people that are going to come in the door when we open for business, okay? That would be a bias. So meaning that if we measured you know the population we measured were all school children and then we service adults they're not going to fit in the bed right they're, the beds are going to be too small so then that would be a bias because who we studied was not the population we wanted to generalize to but here's where it gets tricky how about if or how do you choose the bedsides even if you do sample the correct population and you're generalized, how do you make the decision to accommodate everybody in your population? Because you you could have some pretty wide tails. You know, you could have some very small people and some very tall people. And you only have like a tiny, tiny little bit of, of people on the on the tails. So you're going to pick the median or the mean, and then you're going to pick some kind of range, you know, on either side of the mean and median to, to size your bed, right? right? So that's, I just want to make, that's not bias. That's not bias. That's choice. So that's, a, it, 
it's an excellent distinction that we have to be aware of that there's both going on here. So there's not only bias for sure on how we do our research and whatnot, but there's also choice, right? Which means like, how do you make business decisions in terms of who you service, how you service and all that. So I think there, I just wanted to bring that to light because that's, uh, you know, it's an important consideration uh, for, for when we start talking about bias. And the last thing I want, you know, just for a really good example, especially for Sarah, is, you know, is there is there some kind of bias that, that you know, happens all the time? And there is. And that is at SickKids, it's a pediatric hospital and children are not small adults. And very often, unfortunately, children are treated like small adults perfect example of bias where it's been it's been tested like clinically tested and researched in adults and then it's applied to children and one of the reasons that that kind of existed was because testing and studies on children were just really difficult to do pascal you brought up a really great point because i come from the world of maternal child nursing so um, as you can imagine there are very few studies being done on pregnant women and breastfeeding women and when it came to research, so many times I had to tell women, I don't actually know if you can take this medication and still safely breastfeed because the evidence shows there is no there is no data on breastfeeding women, but we think probably it's safe. And that's definitely not very reassuring, right? To a first time mom. So how do you get around that when they're already anxious? I think that's, um, there's a huge lack of data, not just for women, but for women of childbearing age because um, of the ethics of doing research in that particular population group. I want to move on and dive deeper to like the end user side of things. You know, if there's been any work done on how providers balance the need for health equity and actually putting them into practice. So for instance, um, a main complaint that has come up is that the added uh, admin burden on physicians completing notes after seeing patients. Um, would mandating collection of data on race or these other factors um, subject to bias, would that be something well accepted by healthcare providers? I'm probably biased in my uh, answering of this question. I mean, from where I'm sitting and then my interest in increasing the diversity of the data. But based on the, I mean, the discussion that I had with colleague with the clinical colleagues that are working in the hospitals and again this is a limited sample of downtown Toronto hospitals it seems that the people are interested in collecting the data because the race data will help them or like the other diversity related data will help them in terms of their making the appropriate decision about how to take care of the patients and it's also for very similar reason that the hospitals are going through these policies, like for example, UHN is going through that, that now that when they're collecting the data from the individuals to incorporate that as like the data of the race and some data that represents uh, the social determinants of the health as part of data that they're recording, because without having like, for example, the living condition of someone or the other factors that contribute to their health, it's harder for the physician to have that full picture and make the decision of what is the most appropriate uh, treatment for the patient. Or for example, what are the concerns or challenges that they may have in terms of adherence to treatment. And part of the research that I'm doing recently is about uh, providing the sleep care for the people who are living in the shelters and experiencing homelessness. So, 
now you can think of like, for example, diabetes that is quite common in this population or high blood pressure. If the treatment that the physician is giving requires like having a device to monitor their blood pressure every day, it's not going to work because how the people are going to take care of that? Or if they don't have the digital literacy of doing that, how they're going to take care of that and then make sure that the patients are getting reliable data that could help the physicians to make their decision and know if the prescribed treatment is working or not. But, but having this other information is really helping them to make the appropriate decision. So the group of the people that I'm working with, and it could be biased, are actually interested in having more information regarding like these sort of diversity data regarding the race and regarding the other factors that contribute to the health or like the social determinant of health. So as, as Sarah mentioned a while ago, it's so Canada doesn't um, obtain data based on your ethnicity. Is that different in like other parts of, of the world? And do we see better models when in countries where these kinds of information is being taken? So Sarah is great. Canada is not collecting. So this is very new that some of the hospitals have started collecting the race data and other data like UHN just started. I think um, uh, St. Mike started a bit before, but in the US it was part of the practice since 2010, I believe. Yeah, and I think that it's um, it's going to be new for Canada, right? Just the shifting our mindset to collecting race-based data. And it's really important to explain to the public why we're collecting it, right? So we're collecting it because we want to make better clinical decisions. Um, for certain groups that have been um, stigmatized, I think that they would want to know that this data is not being collected to further stigmatize them. So for example, um, Indigenous populations have been harmed a lot by the healthcare system. And if we are going to be collecting data based on race, we need to reassure these groups that we're doing it for their benefit and not to their detriment. One example I can give is when a patient presents in pain. Um, you would think that in theory, if someone's in pain, you give them medication. But oftentimes people are judged based on their uh, ethnicity. Are they really in pain or are they trying to seek drugs? Are they addicted to painkillers? We um, sometimes deal with this bias that their pain is either not believed or it's uh, trying, you know, explain the way. And in particular, women's pain. A lot of times women go to their healthcare providers because they're in pain and it's brushed off as, you know, it's part of your menstrual cycle. Um, it's in your head. Maybe it's related to this other condition that you have. And it gets ignored. And a lot of times the pain does have a valid cause, but because there was bias in the interaction with the healthcare system, it was not addressed and it fell through the cracks. So I think there's lots of different examples of health equity. And even just in terms of the pandemic, a lot of groups were stigmatized uh, during the pandemic. So in particular, there's anti-Asian racism because we thought that COVID came out of Wuhan, out of China. Um, a lot of groups in terms of vaccination uptake were much lower than other groups and it was due to accessibility and lack of trust in the healthcare system. I think previously, um, when I say previously, I mean just, you know, maybe five, you know, years ago or, or maybe 10 years ago, um, it, was, it, it, it was a problem in the sense that 
you know, even for ethics, when you applied for ethics to do research, you had to be very specific as to what variables you were collecting for what purpose. Mm -hmm. um, and today it's a little less strict. <laughs> and the reason for that is because we now have tools at our disposition to do some really cool analyses or modeling um, that we weren't able to do before because we just didn't have the compute power and the storage and and that's that's the the on you know that's welcome machine learning and AI right so that's it's it's not nothing new but our ability to leverage it is new meaning to have that compute power and storage and the cost and et cetera et cetera it, it allows us to do it so now we can use a lot of data and and you know bear fruit from it which is kind of new so now when you you apply for ethics and you say well i'd like everything you know i really i'd like as much data as possible because i want to see if i can get the best you know model as possible they're considering it now and it's a lot it's it's allowable so i think that's kind of what switch switch gears a bit right so meaning that the ability to collect race data is is now considered uh just because there is a valid reason to say hey wait a minute you know we can actually use this data now in modeling um, and, and hopefully we'll get better prediction or we'll get better models. And so it's it's still kind of tricky, right? So meaning that you know, exactly as Sarah says, you know, the you know, you know groups of minority groups, you know, in the population, underrepresented groups in the population are gonna feel, oh no, here we go again, right? Um, and and it's it's a it's it's a reality, right? Um, and it could it could actually end up you know, being a bitiness in the end as well, just because it's a challenge, you know, working with all this data and, and those biases are sometimes are tricky to, to catch. And, and so that's the only warning I will give is that no matter how hard you try, sometimes it's really hard to tease apart that relationship uh, between race, for instance, and socioeconomic status, because, you know, there's not enough data out there to, to show that, um, you know, that relationship is, is, is flawed in that sense. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's just a reality of, of, you know, math and statistics, right. That you need, you need the numbers to be able to do that. And so that's, that's tricky. And so, the, so it is going to take time for, you know, us to be able to use all this data, you know, in a, in a good way. So there's, there's clearly like a challenge in handling all like these, these high volumes high volumes of data, right? But like moving forward, like AI is gonna be part of the healthcare system and how we treat patients moving forward. But like, what, what can we, what are some like, you know, best practices for utilizing this healthcare data while at the same time, you're balancing the need for privacy, security and reducing the potential for discrimination? Yeah, I think healthcare and privacy is huge because even throughout the pandemic, we saw the explosion of telemedicine. So when doctor's offices were closed, when um, people couldn't seek the care that they needed in person, um, a lot of people, a lot of providers had to quickly pivot to telemedicine, um, people who had never used it before. And, you know, there's always that issue with data privacy. I know in my particular organization, we have to get clients to sign a consent and we have to send it through encrypted email. And even teaching our staff how to do that was a big to do. And then not only that, we have to include a little clause that as safe as telemedicine is, there is always a very small risk of data breach, right? So we have to disclose that to our clients 
And I know that in many organizations, they do look at all the time where um, there is a phishing email sent to staff, an email that is asking staff to input their login credentials so that someone can essentially hack into the medical record system and disable it. It's actually quite a huge problem. I, I, I like mixing the pot a little bit, so I'll, I'll add a little bit. So I think, you know, to be positive, I think it's improving. So in some ways it's not, and in some ways it is. Uh, when I started a research uh, many years ago, um, you know, ethics, uh, you know, getting through ethics and, and getting access to data was actually a lot harder than it is today. Um, and so a lot of that is because of where we're at as a society. So, I mean, ethics is based on, on morals, right? So what society deems as appropriate, correct, fair, you know, however you want to describe it. Um, and so I, I think it's going, it's going to just slowly change, right? So in terms of what's acceptable, what data can be shared, what is private, what's considered private, what's not, what the penalties are, all of those just change with the needs of society. I hate to bring it to that level, but it is truly that way. Uh, and that you saw in COVID, right, that, um, you know, there is this need to look out for your, you know, your fellow, you know, neighbor, <laughs> you know, you, 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 that's why you put a mask on. That's why you get, you know, your, your vaccination. It's not necessarily for yourself, but it's also for society. So I think that attitude, uh, which... I think there's actually quite a few people that share that attitude will also change, you know, help to change the laws to allow for, you know, relax the laws a little bit um, in order to be able to collect data and share data and, and use it for research to, to better, you know, patient outcomes ultimately, right? And I just think it's a matter of time. But that's that's how we're going to get there is we're going to have to show that we are, you know, as researchers, we are responsible with the data. We, you know, we, we avoid data breaches and we, you know, and we don't share it, you know, when we're not supposed to. And the more we do that, I think the more we're going to be able to collect data and to use it for research. With respect to the the whole the, the bias issue in healthcare data, what what can what are some things that that we could, that can be done or are being done to minimize the impact of that of bias in both data collection and the handling of the, the healthcare data. I mean, I can give you a perfect a perfect example um, that it's it it has happened and it is happening and it will continue to happen, and that is, for instance, uh, sex and gender. I mean, it's a foregone conclusion now that if you go somewhere and you fill out a form or you you know whatever. If if you don't have you know if if the if the box the check boxes is male female and that's it, uh, you can kind of go back to them and say, and say uh, hello, <laughs> you know who are you to not give us other options? And so there's a perfect example of how it's going. It is changing in how we collect data and how we minimize bias. So th there's there's a you know how you you know make sure that underrepresented groups right. Uh, are getting data collected on them uh, is it, there's there's a good example and and there are many but that's just the in your face kind of example right because everyone everyone's seen this one but but that's that's exactly how the change is made is that you know we have to we have to recognize first of all that there's underrepresented groups 
that's easy. Um, and then we have to implement it into the process of how we uh, collect data. And that's that's kind of our job, right? right like right. what that's what that's what we drive as data scientists is is sharing with the clinical setting, hey, <laughs> you should be collecting all this data because you keep asking us, you know, to predict stuff for you and to build all these models. But wouldn't it be wonderful if you could give us more data, right? right. Uh, and so then that's how we, you know, when working with the clinical setting, we, we, we make sure that that data is collected and it's collected properly and appropriately and at the right time and all that fun stuff. But that's that's the process, and and once again, I'm I'm actually quite optimistic. I think it's you'll be pleasantly surprised that uh, you know m many most institutions are making changes to how they collect data and how they share their data. But as Pascal said, there's a lot of advancements being made. But what do you think are still some gaps that need to be addressed, um, especially considering that AI is becoming more and more a part of our society and our health? I think from a frontline perspective, I just always want to know, and maybe a lot of people do too, why different electronic medical records don't talk to each other. So for example, when you go to a doctor's office, you give all your information, you give your health history, then you have to go to the hospital. You have to give all that information over again. Um, so I just think that is a huge gap in the sense that we're not sharing information. We're relying on the patient as as a perfect historian of their entire health history. And it's a real waste of time to have them to keep explaining their health history over and over. Um, and I think there's definitely a lot of innovation that can happen in that aspect. And in addition to a lot of the things that we talked about to reduce bias in healthcare data collection. I think that's an excellent point, Sarah. And I don't know why, I, I wish, but it's one of like probably those million dollar questions that you can put all these assistance or hospitals together and see what's wrong and what's happening. The other thing that can be added, or no, go ahead. No, no, no. I'll just make a little comment on that. I'm just giggling because um, I've been involved in this for, for a few years now. And uh, so I can give you a little bit of an answer on that one. Uh, and I won't go into too much detail, but uh, in the province of Ontario, anyway, there was a project that was started by the government called Ichin. Uh, and it was actually part of SickKids was part of it at the time. Was, and it was in the started in the mid late 90s, I think something like yeah, about mid late 90s. And then it it uh, it crashed and burned really badly. Uh, and they did, a, you know, they, they investigated why and whatnot. And, and basically, the bottom line is, is because um, the tech side of it didn't involve the medical side of it. So the medical side of it, who are the users, uh, were not involved in the development of the of the you know, the, the product, the project and, and what, et cetera, et cetera. And so they just said, we're not using that. You know, who are you, right? Anyway, crash and burn, huge waste of money. Anyway, so to answer your question really quickly, yeah, absolutely, it's a requirement. My God, like, you, you, like wow, right? That, you know, it doesn't, okay. So the, the biggest problem, of course, is uh, going to be not only the tech. So the technology does exist, but the problem is standards. So how does everybody agree that we're going to use this? Huge problem. Money. So if you're really rich, you're a big hospital with lots of money, then implementing this, no problem, right? If you're a small cl community clinic and you're told, hey, you got to use this, you're like, okay, give me the cash. And then who pays for it? So that's probably the biggest problem 
Is it happening? Absolutely. If you look at the United States, they're way ahead of us on that. Uh, definitely. Uh, the reason, of course, is because it's a two-tiered healthcare system. So it's a little bit different in that sense, but it is it is coming. So, but it's just fraught with challenge because of the the the, the standards, the money, the users, who's going to be willing to do it, but it is coming. Um, and, and you know, it's possible because, you know, all the centers that went through Epic, <laughs> you know, bringing on board Epic was like, you know, it's years, right, to bring on Epic. And that's a huge system. So there's an example where, you know, it is going to start because, you know, whoever is on Epic is going to be able to start talking and, and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, the lab, all the labs, as you all know, which I think is amazing as a user, is, you know, I go for a lab test, you know, sadly, you know, my age, I have to go for lab tests. Uh, and then, you know, you're walking out of your test and it, bing, it comes on your phone. Like, here you go. What? That's amazing, right? Every hospital has it now. So it's just a matter of time that those systems are going to start talking, right? That's a great point, Pascal. And I was actually going to refer to something that you address that very nicely in terms of the different parts talking with each other. And that's one of the lags that we have that someone is designing a system, in this case, like the health record without talking with the other part that or those that are going to use it. And the very same thing could be or is a challenge. And if the engineers and the programmers just sit and then decide what the outcome should be or what the algorithm should come up or how the data should be presented, by the end, probably no one is using that, neither the physician or the end users, like the patients or the care provider. But one thing that we can really do, and that is also one of the things that is getting more attention and more people are paying or like taking that into consideration is how to bring the end user on the first day of the decision-making and the design and make sure that their consideration are included in the data. Like for example, what is the outcome that matters for the people? For a lot of the people, I'm just giving an example, when you talk about the sleep apnea, the physicians are talking about, oh, sleep apnea is so bad because it increases your risk of a stroke or heart failure. And the, the people are like, who cares? I mean, I'm not going to get a stroke or heart failure. But if you tell them, and that was actually a very nice uh, systematic review that if you talk with the people and ask the people what do they care about the sleep apnea the most is the snoring. So they don't want to snore because if they snore, they have that affects their social life. They have to sleep in a separate room and so on. And then if now you target your outcome instead of the sleep apnea treatment improves your blood pressure to it improves your snoring, well then the adherence to treatment will become much more. So really by engaging the end user, either the physician or the patient, who is going to use your algorithm at the end? At the beginning, that what do you care? What do you want to see from this algorithm or this device? How it can help you? And then design it based on that can really help with a lot of those biases, can help with building trust because now the people can see how this can help them. And it's not just a data that's being used without knowing what it happens. And then it actually helps to empower the people to be more active and engaging in their care. That concludes our panel discussion. We hope you enjoyed and now have a deeper appreciation for the complexities in acquiring, analyzing, 
and applying patient data in our healthcare system and the steps we can take to ensure more equitable practices. We want to extend a huge thank you again to our guests, Dr. Pascal Tyrell, Sarah Fung, and Dr. Azadeh Yadolahi for their time and wonderful insights into this conversation. This episode was produced by Junaid, Noor, Priska, and myself. Finally, thank you to our sponsors MBNA, Manulife, and TD Insurance for making this episode possible.